It was, I don't know, some months ago that we put this verse on the wall behind me, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Uh, I thought it was painted on, but as I look closer, I see that I think they're actual cutout letters. I suspect Julian probably did that. Yeah, Julian did that. He does a lot of things behind the scenes like that. If you see wonderful woodworking, uh, it probably has Dr. Julian's hand on it at some point. Well, here's what's behind me. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, we put that verse up there as kind of a part of an ongoing attempt um, to get us to, to step up to the plate a little bit and be more courageous and more bold and more faithful in sharing our faith. We wanted to encourage you to take what we hope is a growing faith here as you get to know God better and better and use it to make him known to other people. Buzz has used that phrase on more than one occasion, to know him and to make him known. Well, this is the making him known, where you go and you plead and you implore and you teach and you urge other people to be reconciled to God, because that's what ambassadors do. Ambassadors become immersed and educated in the country that is sending them out. You learn culture, you learn language, you learn laws. You, you get to know the king or the sovereign or the president or whoever it is that's sending you out as an ambassador. You get to know their heart, their mind, their ways. And then as an ambassador, you figure out how to translate that into another culture and other people that, that, that don't know God but nevertheless need to be reconciled to God. That's what this text calls us to do. Ambassadors, and, and this is really interesting, it says implore on the wall. If you happen to read the New American Standard, it says beg. And there's a couple of sermons just in that one word right there. We don't just teach. There's heart and there's urgency involved in it. Well, this morning, there's a number of questions that we could ask about verse 20, but I want to ask just one. What is the basis of the reconciliation that's mentioned in verse 20? If we're, if we're going to implore people, we implore you, be reconciled to God, we better be able to answer the question, what does that reconciliation look like? What's its basis? How, what, what's its extent? How does Paul conceive of reconciliation? That's the message that we have to get right because that's the message that we're called to take to the world. So it's just the one question I want to ask. And I think the answer is found very near to it. I think it's found in the very next verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And in that verse, I'm going to suggest we find not one, but two answers to that question and that both of them are essential. So let's, let's read the two verses together. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In verse 21, I think there's two answers to the question that I'm trying to pose from verse 20. What, what are we asking people to do when we say be reconciled? What are we promising them happens when we say they can be reconciled to God. And the first part of that answer is this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. 
It's the first part of the answer. Something needs to happen with sin. And to clear up any confusion, because Paul oftentimes just uses pronouns, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin, though Christ knew no sin. This is how God looks at Christ. This is what God did with Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. What does that mean? Well, first, it doesn't mean that Christ became a sinner. Rather, as John the Baptist declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He takes them away. He doesn't bring them. John is borrowing imagery from the Passover lamb, and as you know, that lamb needed to be without spot, without blemish, couldn't be blind, couldn't be lame. It had to be a perfect specimen symbolizing purity and symbolizing sinlessness. A more direct statement in Hebrews 4.15, which says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So whatever it means that he made him who knew no sin to be sin, it doesn't mean that Christ became a sinner. But what does it mean? How can you be sin if you've never sinned? I think there's help to be found by going all the way back to the words of Isaiah hundreds of years earlier. Very familiar passage, Isaiah 53. Isaiah is speaking of the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, the person that we know as Jesus, and here's what he says. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the phrase. That's why I went there. God can in some way lay the iniquity of us all on the Messiah. And Isaiah, like John the Baptist, also wants us to know that this crushing of the Messiah for our sins is not the result of the Messiah having done anything wrong because he says just a verse or two later, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So that's what the first half of verse 21 is speaking of. God placed our sins on Christ and punished Christ as though they were his. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 6 is simply Isaiah's way of saying what Paul says in verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now there's a term for this work of God by which one person, in this case Christ, is credited with the acts of another. Uh, in this case, the sinful acts of many others. And the term is imputation. Sounds like a big word. Substitute reckon or consider. God considers Christ guilty when in fact he's not. And by doing that, somehow, because of this transfer of guilt, it becomes right or just to punish the son as though he were guilty, as though he had committed sin. Now, that's a little bit strange to us. We would not generally admire a justice system that says, well, I know you're guilty, but I'm going to punish them. 
We're called not to have a justice system like that. And we, we expend considerable resources to try to find who is guilty and to exonerate who is innocent so that the guilty party is punished and the innocent party is set free. I'm not saying there's no corruption or no error in our system, but it is a goal that that happen. But our ways are not like God's ways. God says, I can look at one who has no sin and consider him to be sin and hang him on a cross. That's so shocking and so offensive to our sensibilities that I think God has gone ahead of us, if you will, and woven into the stories of the Bible this kind of imputation, this kind of one man sinned, but a whole bunch of other people are paying for it. Do you remember Achan? The conquest of Jericho. People are told when finally the walls fall down, go in, but you're not to keep any of the plunder. It's all to be burned. Achan keeps some of the plunder, buries it under his tent. Nobody knows about it. God and Achan. The next battle, easy battle. Israel just sends out a few men. Don't worry about it. This will be easy after Jericho. And they're defeated. 36 men, I believe. Yes, 36 men who had not sinned as Achan did, died in that battle. Joshua goes about finding out what happened. They begin to draw lots. Finally, it comes to Achan. Achan confesses. He did it. It was his sin. 36 men are already dead for this one man's sin, and now the entire family, cattle included, are gathered up, stoned, and burned. That's an ugly scene. One man's sin was imputed to a number of other people who had not sinned in that likeness. Similar one in number 16. Three fathers, three heads of families. Sin and the earth swallows up all of their families. That's of God. I mean, if you go back and say, well, maybe that was just Joshua getting carried away. In Numbers 16, Joshua had nothing to do with it. The earth just opens up and swallows those families in judgment of what their fathers had done. As I said, our justice system is not like that. I think there's good reasons that it's not like that. But it's clear in Scripture that God can and does impute the acts of one to the account of another. Where we might struggle with a punitive analogy, let me offer you a financial analogy that will maybe be a little more familiar and a little bit less offensive, but hopefully just as illustrative. Imagine a person with outstanding credit, perfect credit, and they generously and compassionately, with full knowledge, co-sign a note for a person with terrible credit. In fact, that person's credit is so bad that default is a certainty. The person who co-signs the note is going to be on the hook for the payment. In compassion and with full knowledge that he will be legally liable, the man nevertheless signs. Now at no time does this man with a perfect credit incur any debt of his own. But he's got an agreement with a banker. It's legal, it's binding, it's voluntary, and it's just. 
it's righteous, that if there is a default, this man will make it right. The debt of the man with no credit is imputed to the man with perfect credit. And in that you see mercy, and in that you see justice. I think, I hope that analogy is a bit easier to grasp, but in any case, the point is this. The Bible teaches, and we can understand, at least in measure, how Christ can pay our debt without actually ever having incurred any debt of his own. God can reckon him a debtor in our place, and with full agreement and submission of Christ, collect that debt from him and not from us. That's the first thing I want us to see in verse 21, the first of two answers that Paul gives to the question, what needs to happen for me to be reconciled to God? Our sin needs to be imputed. It needs to be reckoned. It needs to be so placed on Christ that he can bear my punishment in my place. If we lose that, if we say, well, that's not right, that can't happen, and and there are people who do. There's people who say, that, that can't happen. Well, when you say that, you just lost the gospel. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. That's the first half of our reconciliation with God. Imputation is real. And we'll come back to it. There's more illustrations of it. The second answer to the question of what needs to happen for us to be reconciled to God is found in the second half of the verse, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me say this just as plainly as I know how to say it up front before we unpack it together. Your reconciliation to God is not complete when guilt is removed. That's the first part of the verse. It's necessary, it's beautiful, it's glorious, it's gracious, it's true, it must happen, it's not complete. Innocence is the removal of guilt, but it doesn't begin to exhaust the good news of what it means to be reconciled to God. If it did, we wouldn't have the second half of the verse. The verse instead would read, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, period, full stop. It's not what the verse says. Reconciliation requires not merely the imputation of our sin to Christ that we might be forgiven, but it also requires the imputation of his righteousness to us, which is the second half of the verse. Do you see that? There's two parts to this verse, and they're joined by a so that. The little phrase means that that first part of the verse, the imputation of my sin to Christ, so that means that first part serves the second part, or to say it in a single phrase, Forgiveness serves righteousness. The imputation of my sin to Christ paves the way for the imputation of his righteousness to me. Peter said exactly the same thing in his first epistle, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The goal of forgiveness in the first half of verse 21 and what Peter's talking about in the first half, the Christ suffering for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the goal of those things does not end 
with a not guilty verdict. Let me ask you, is that what you want? Stand before God in his courtroom and hear not guilty and then be dismissed. Is that what you were created for? To be dismissed from the presence of God with a not guilty verdict? It's not. You were created for fellowship with God. Peter says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That purpose clause he might bring us to God. This is where we need to be careful, really careful. And so please, give me a few minutes of your very best thinking right now. There's two kinds of righteousness that every Christian needs. Both are graciously purchased for you on the cross of Jesus Christ. Both are glorious but only one is in view here. Let me start with the one that's not in view. There's a righteousness not in view in our text, and it's this. There is a sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that produces righteousness in me and in you. It's reflected in your words. It's reflected in your deeds. It's sometimes called imparted righteousness. This is Philippians 2.13. God is at work in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. This is 2 Corinthians 3 where, where we are being transformed from one degree of glory into another as we behold the glory of God. This is Galatians 5, walking by the Spirit. These are the things that actually change in you, in your character and in your behavior. That's a wonderful righteousness. That's purchased for you on the cross by Jesus Christ to be worked out over the rest of your life. That's a glorious, wonderful, necessary righteousness. It's not the righteousness in view here. The righteousness in view here is an imputed righteousness. It's a righteousness that's not ours. Some theologians call it an alien righteousness. It comes from outside you. It's the righteousness we see in Christ. It is his perfect, active obedience to the Father at every point that is then credited, reckoned, imputed to you. In other words, the two halves of verse 21 work together to illustrate not one, but two examples of imputation. My very real sin is imputed to Christ who had no sin. Has to happen, or he can't die in my place so that the very real righteousness of Christ can be imputed to me, who had no righteousness. What happens in the first half of the verse with sin happens in the second half of the verse with righteousness. In the first half, God looks at his beloved son as he should have looked at me. Sin. And in the second half of the verse, God looks at me the way he looks at his beloved son. Righteous. There is not one reckoning or one imputation in verse 21. There are two, and we desperately need both. I need 
the imputation of my sin to Christ so that I can receive the imputation of his righteousness to me. That's what that one little all-important verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, says. Think of Christ in the Gospels. What does he do? He heals, teaches, rebukes those who abuse power, lifts up the lowly, feeds the hungry, cleanses the lepers, touches the untouchable, eats with sinners. And everything about that, you look at it and you go, righteous! That's his active righteousness. It is Jesus Christ doing perfectly what Adam and Eve and you and I were called to do but failed so miserably to do. So here's the deal. It is that perfect, active righteousness of Christ that is credited to you when by faith you become in union with Christ. I taught on this once before seven years ago. I almost dusted off that sermon to give it again because none of you would have remembered seven years ago. God wouldn't let me do that and I'm glad he wouldn't let me do that. That sermon wasn't from 2 Corinthians 5, it was from Romans 5. But it's the same message of imputation. It's, it's one man, Adam, one sin, death to all. That's the imputation of Adam's sin to us. So that we'd have a category and a way of thinking about one man, one act of righteousness, justification to all. That's the work of Christ. In that message, I referenced a passage that several of you said, ah, that was key. That was helpful for me getting my head around what's actually happening in this whole imputation business. So let me reference that passage again. It's in 1 Samuel 17. You can turn there if you want, but it's, it's so familiar. Maybe just make a note of where it is and you can look at it later. 1 Samuel 17 is the story of David and Goliath. David is sent by his father to the camp of the army of Israel to visit his older brothers to bring them provisions David is too young to actually be part of the army, and his older brothers are a little bit embarrassed and annoyed that their kid brother has showed up with lunch, and, uh, and they're not kind to him. Um, while he's there, David hears something that he finds deeply disturbing. Every day, this giant of a man, Goliath, stands not far from the camp of Israel, and he taunts the armies of Israel. Now, we're going to read his taunt in just a second, but first let me point out a small but utterly crucial detail about Goliath. Not once, but three times in 1 Samuel 17, Goliath is called the champion of the Philistines. He's called the champion in verse 4, verse 23, and verse 51. Now, a champion might mean that he's just the roughest and the toughest, which is almost certainly the case with Goliath. He, he was the biggest but it's not all it means. It means, especially in this context, that he is the representative of the entire Philistine nation. He is their head. He is their representative. And now listen to how he explains that and the implication of that in his taunt. 1 Samuel 17, 8. This is Goliath speaking. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? 
Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Do you hear in that? The challenge? And the connection between how the representative, the champion, the head of a people, if he prevails, his people prevail with him. If he loses, the people lose with him. If we win, you become our servants. If you win, we become your servants. There's only two men fighting, David and Goliath. But the victory or the defeat is going to be credited to their respective people. That's imputation. There's lighter ways that imputation is woven into our everyday life. About three or four weeks ago, Pastor Buzz stood up here and he said, my team won, and he did his little... Now, he's very diplomatic. He didn't mention who his team was or who they beat. I'm less diplomatic. His team was Duke, and they beat Florida State. Uh, it was the Atlantic Coast Championship. But here's the deal. I love my brother, but I'm pretty sure he never suited up for Duke. There's, there's clues to why that's so, okay? And, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, but there's a reason why you can be reasonably certain that, that Buzz never suited up for the Duke Blue Devils. So why was he excited? I think it was genuine. It, it wasn't deep, it wasn't profound, but it was genuine. He kind of liked it. I, I actually was at a dinner with him earlier that night, and, and he mentioned it. I'm going to go home and watch the game. And while I didn't look around to see the reaction on the Florida State alumni, I'm pretty sure you weren't doing any of this. Why? You didn't suit up for Florida State. What is it? that when somebody who just represents us, somebody that's associated with us, and people that we've never met, I don't think you've met Zion Williamson, what is it when they do well and we celebrate, or they do poorly and we're a little... That's just a low-level, low-key way that I think God has woven into our experience. Imputation. It's why we can weep with those who weep and not have it be crocodile tears. That's why we can rejoice with those who rejoice and have it be genuine, is that somehow that connection can happen and it's real. I think it's what we're seeing in 2 Corinthians 5. It's what we see in Romans 5. It's what we see in 1 Samuel 17, that somebody else acts on our behalf and yet it's credited to us. At this point, though maybe the most practical question for us would be when? I mean, let's say you accept. I, I believe that my righteousness is in Christ. I believe he secured my righteousness. He's my only hope. I've known that all my life. When is his righteousness counted as your righteousness? I know on the last day I'll be found righteous. I know in eternity I'll be righteous. But what about today? It's a really important question. Because today... You were short with your children. Today you snapped at your wife or your husband. Today you were rude to other drivers. Today you went and got a cup of coffee and gossiped. 
Today you didn't look with eyes of compassion with anybody here to greet them. Or, or I don't know what you did today, but I promise you, you were not Jesus Christ today. We all have sin. So how does God look on you today? Are you reconciled today? Are you guilty in his sight because sin just clings to you sometimes? Have you been upgraded to being innocent? Or are you righteous? It's an incredibly important question. And I want to declare to you that Scripture says the moment you are joined to Christ through faith, his righteousness is reckoned as yours from that point forth and for all eternity. It is imputed to you forever. He's not taking it back. It's counted as yours. There's a wonderful verse in Hebrews that teaches both the immediate and permanent change in status. That's what we're talking about. When you place your faith in Christ, there's a change in status. You were guilty one moment. You passed right through innocence to righteousness the very next moment. I like Monopoly. Go to jail. Go directly to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. That's a change of status. You were free one moment. You're in jail the next. You're not doing any business on the way. There's a verse in Hebrews that teaches both the immediate and permanent change in status that comes from the imputation of Christ's righteousness as well as the more gradual change in character that comes from sanctification. We need both. We're given both. There in Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And if you know an English teacher, go give them a hug if you know your verb tenses. Perfected is in the perfect tense, a tense that emphasizes the present ongoing action of something already done. And you see it. He has perfected, it's done, for all time. Continuing impact of that past action. It isn't something that's going to happen. It's something that has happened and the effects will last for eternity. And then how do you know it? it's happened to you, maybe? Well, because it happens to those who are being sanctified. Is there a little bit of growth in character? Fighting sin at all? Repenting? Is anything happening in your life where you can say, I'm so frustrated with how slow it is. But it's happening a little bit. That's a sign. This is the writer of Hebrews putting together two glorious kinds of righteousness. The kind that's imputed to you, yours forever in a moment by the work of Christ. The moment you believe. And yours that's growing in practical changes in your character and in your behavior. Let's answer the question we started with. What needs to happen for us to be reconciled to God? And the answer is twofold. Our sin must be imputed to Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we can be credited with the righteousness of Christ. 
as some have phrased it, and I like this, Christ is both our pardon and our perfection. And they're both in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He's our pardon. He bears our sin. He's our perfection. His righteousness is credited to us. But now what? Forty years ago, I was taught by my teacher in Ephesians, you should always ask, so what? Now, when you're 20 years old, you can be a little snarky when you ask, so what? But I've learned that it's still an important question. So what? Your sin's imputed to Christ, his righteousness imputed to you. You're going to walk out that door in a few minutes. What are you going to do differently? What difference does it make? Well, I'm going to give you three. You could do a dozen, but I'll give you three. Number one, we fight despair and depression and the attacks of the devil devil, by standing on the rock of double imputation. That's what this is. This is double imputation. The imputation of your sin to Christ so that you're, you're not guilty and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to you so that you're righteous. There, there's a song that we sing. I love this song. I've been, you know how you get a song in your head and you can't get it out? I can't get this song out of my head. It's been in my head for about two months and I'm not trying to get it out before the throne of God above. Here's how one of the verses begins. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. That happens. Scripture describes Satan, among other things, as the accuser of the brethren. And when he accuses you, he doesn't need to make up one thing. Sin. By the way, isn't that the same sin you had last week, last year? Sin. He doesn't have to make it up. He just has to observe. Sin remains. He'll go after you, and he'll tell you, you know, that's really all you are is sin. He'll never remind you or bring to mind the sins that you've made progress in. He'll never point out growth, never point out anything that looks like sanctification. He will only point out the sins that remain to drive you to despair and guess what your own conscience will agree with him you know your guilt you know the sin that remains so how do you fight that when your conscience agrees with the accusations of Satan and all you can see in that moment is your sin and your failure well I want to recommend you sing the rest of the verse When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The sinless Savior died My still sinful soul is counted free because God the just is satisfied having imputed my sin to Christ to look on him and pardon me. One of the greatest hymns ever written. That's the answer from the first half of verse 21. How do you withstand the accusations of the devil and how do you not sink into deep depression 
because of your own frustration with your own sin and the toxic cocktail that the two of those make. But that's just the first half. There's a second half that brings even more hope. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, my righteousness, him, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his blood, my life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. That's the second half of verse 21. In the first half, my sin is atoned for. In the second half, my righteousness is provided for. Christ does both. He is my pardon. He is my perfection. It's real and it's now. So I just want to say you're not alone in your struggles. Saints have gone before you enduring the same kinds of attacks from Satan, from their own conscience, and they've not only survived, they've written songs. Really, really good songs that are rich with theology and rich with truth and rich with grace. They meditated on 2 Corinthians 5 or Romans 5 or Philippians 3 or Isaiah 53 or Hebrews 10 or a dozen other verses. And they say, I'm not merely innocent. I'm righteous. You know the hymns. Sing them. One of the handy things about them is that music's easy to remember and you can do it while you're driving. It's a little harder to study 2 Corinthians 5.21 behind the wheel. Although I'm persuaded some of the drivers ahead of me are doing something similar to that. Um, But come home and open your Bible and start reading those things. And then you put one foot on the rock that says pardoned and one foot on the rock that says perfected and you stand. Your endurance, this will sound theological, I hope you receive it as enormously practical. Your endurance is the double imputation of 2 Corinthians 5.21. Second application. The power to make progress in holiness comes from knowing that I am already accounted as holy. That's why I titled the sermon the way I did, Perfection Precedes Progress. That's just the opposite of the way we think, right? If, if you're perfect, you don't need to progress. We're going to progress too. Unless there's two kinds of perfection. Unless there's two kinds of righteousness, which there is. It is the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness. Me being counted righteous in what he did. It's what's already happened to me that now allows me to make progress in Christ-like imparted righteousness, that, that sanctifying process, that putting sin to death process, that walking by the Spirit process. Imputation precedes and enables impartation. I love how John Piper states it. You must be reckoned perfect before you can make headway in being good. You ought to write that down, so I'll say it again. They're not my words. You must be reckoned perfect before you can make headway in being good. Who talks like that? 
That's utterly backwards from the way most of us think. But I think he's right. But I don't want to leave you hanging on John Piper's words. I would rather you hang on John the Apostle's words. So 1 John 3.1, see if you don't hear exactly that message in these words. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I don't know if you noticed, but John had to tell you twice that you're a child of God. Why do you have to do that? Did you miss it the first time? You just didn't believe it the first time. We don't act very much like children of God sometimes, and as a result, we don't think of ourselves as children of God. John twice says, no, right now, as you sit there with all your struggles, all your failures, all the things that drive you crazy about yourself, if you are united to Christ through faith, you are a child of God. And in case you missed it, he says, I'll tell you twice. And then he says this, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In, in John the Apostle's mind, Practical purification, sanctification, is not driven by guilt, but by hope that you're already a child of God. I've yet to meet the person who's just been overwhelmed by the love of God that took their sin and placed them on Christ and the love of God that took his righteousness and credited it to them and then works that righteousness into them on a practical daily basis as well. I've yet to meet the person who says, oh, that's wonderful, I love that. But I gotta tell you, I really don't care about being righteous. I really don't care about killing my sin. That's not the, the grace that leads you to look at Christ as your sin-bearing substitute and as your righteousness-providing Savior, that same grace doesn't leave you casual about the sin that remains. You don't have to worry about saying, what if, what if I really just believe all my sin's taken care of in Christ and my righteousness is provided for Christ? Well then, shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Because that same grace is making you die to sin. So my point is simply this. Let's fight sin the way the Bible tells us to fight sin as pardoned and perfected saints. If you have that hope, greater purity will follow. You must be reckoned perfect before you can make headway in being good. Third, finally, we started this message talking about being ambassadors urging people, imploring people to be reconciled to God. Well, ambassadors have a message and they need to get the message right. The king wills for you to actually communicate what's on his heart, what's on his mind, what reconciliation will look like. Ambassadors should know what they're talking about. 
doctrine matters. Don't introduce people to a God who bears no resemblance to the one who does exactly what he says he does in 2 Corinthians 5.21. When you're calling people to be reconciled, you're calling them to trust Christ to be your perfect, complete, once-for-all bearer of sin so that you can be the perfect and complete, once-for-all recipient of his righteousness. Get the message complete. Get it right. Don't preach half a gospel. Don't preach pardoned but on probation. Preach pardoned and perfected. And because a faithful ambassador should be imploring, begging, and not merely explaining, we need to meditate on the truths of verse 21 until the lights begin to come on in our own mind, in our own heart. I know where you are right now. I've been talking for 30 minutes. Do you get it? Do you get that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Do you get that when you read the Gospels and you see the righteousness of Christ, that that's what he's crediting to you as you sit here flawed as you are, frustrated as you are? Because if you get it, it's going to do something in here. And the imploring will start to become natural and easy. We've got people in our church that are rightly, I want to be very clear, rightly learning techniques for evangelism. Ways to start a conversation, ways to break the ice, way, ways to answer objections. Keep on doing it. That's wonderful. But what that does is open the door. Now maybe the person will listen to you. What's on the other side of that door? When you start talking about reconciliation, it better be pardon and it better be perfection and it better be something that has stirred your own heart or you won't implore anyone. You won't beg anyone. You want to make progress as an ambassador? You want to fill up that thing with the ping pong balls outside? We can do better, folks. You need to rejoice first that right now all your sin has been imputed to Christ and all his righteousness has been imputed to you forever. Let's pray. Father, it's at times like this that I am keenly aware <clears throat> of my inability to communicate news that is too good to be true. How can it be that you look at your son with such perfect delight? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And you look at him as he does all that you called him to do in perfect righteousness with joy and with delight and with faithfulness and he his righteousness just oozes off every page of the Gospels. How can it be that you look at him and then you look at me and you look at everyone who is united to your son through faith and you say that righteousness is credited as yours? Father God, I pray that we might feel it. I pray that we might believe it. I pray that it might become ever clearer in our minds and I pray that it might lift the despairing from depression. I pray that it might give us a message that's powerful. I pray that it might just transform our own hearts so that there is a zeal 
and an urgency and an imploring to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Bruce. Church, let's stand and let's respond to the words of the Lord this morning as we sing together.